Evangelical Christianity in the last 50 years has presented a weak, watered-down Christianity that, the, that in the end is damning many people. Many, many people go to church because it is the right thing to do. The reason that is often given for going to church and following Jesus is He wants to help us to have a happy life. Often the focus is on happy marriages, happy parenting, and happy finances. Well, beloved, this is not how the Bible presents the Christian walk. The Bible says our joy is in Jesus. And we died to self and we died to self fleshly interests and self satisfaction. We die to self because he is sufficient. We live in a time where suffering is our true calling. The true calling of a believer is to die to self and for others. To die to, to help others. Lay down your life for others and for the sake of the gospel. However, we're taught, even in some reformed circles, that we are free to do whatever we please. There's a big push to just live it up because God has given everything to us to enjoy to the fullest. There's a group of in the reformed circles that thinks it's perfectly okay to sit around sipping wine and smoking cigars and having theological debates. The focus is on our theological freedoms in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, we are free in Christ. But our freedom in Christ is to die for others. How about that for a paradox? And to die for the Lord. We must live to honor Christ by dying for others as he died for us. We live in this new covenant time in a lost world. We are people who are free to die to self. You ever thought of that before? Free to die to self. Again, we get the privilege because Christ died for us. And made us his adopted children. We now live for others, not ourselves. Because that is what being God's child looks like. Genuine believers lay down their lives for others. We don't come to church to get something. We come to church to lay our lives down for other people. So we make decisions on what we should do. What we should drink. What we should eat based totally on what would help other people, not ourselves. Now think about that. We are all about others, so when we choose to do anything, we choose to do it in a way that will honor other people, not ourselves. We'll help other people and glorify our king. Boy, that's not what we're sold in evangelical Christianity, is it? In all stretches, from the Arminian side to the Reformed side, there's this push to just... Let it go. Be free. Enjoy life. I would say enjoy Christ. That's what you do. 
enjoy Christ. And when you enjoy Christ, what will happen? You will die to self. In our passage today, we see Jesus says, the age we live in and the age that they were going to go into is the opposite of what had happened while he was there, in a sense. It was going to change. They were going to face opposition from the evil one. And they were going to suffer. Jesus says, in effect, the kingdom you are a part of is already in your hearts. Yes, there is a true spiritual kingdom, but it's not yet fulfilled in this lost world. So you're going to have to suffer like I am. And I did. Jesus warns the disciples that a day of suffering is coming. So in effect, he says, being my follower will cost you something. But the good news is that Jesus is worth it. Folks, I I, I think it is very important that we get this. We are presenting a gospel to people that says, you're going to suffer here. (laughs) It's not going to necessarily be easy. I want you to think about that. If I say that to somebody that's not really heard the gospel, and I say, hey, look, I got some good news for you. (laughs) You're going to suffer. (laughs) It's going to be a struggle. Matter of fact, you're going to be a chief adversary of the ruler of this world. He is going to hate you. Okay? Matter of fact, most of the world, because wide is the way that leads to destruction, and, and many go that way, most of the world's going to hate you. How do you think that would go over as you presented the gospel? Oh, I don't want that. No, thank you. I have enough troubles with my own life now. What in the world would I want more? But folks, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples right here before he dies. He's telling me, it was nice, it was great, but it's going to get bad. It's going to be hard. What in the world would make them say, okay, I want to go. I want to follow. The answer is Jesus and what he was going to do the next day. Ladies and gentlemen, knowing that our sins are paid for by the Lamb will make us do just about anything for him. And it will be a privilege to do it. We're going to see that as we go through this passage today. Jesus does this. He calls them and says, look, this is going to be hard, but I'm worth it. So look at your Bibles today. We will see Jesus gave multiple warnings concerning the disciples' near future. These warnings can be broken down into two main sections. The first section will be the disciples' suffering will be like wheat being sifted. And second, we'll see the disciples' identity with Christ will cost them dearly in verses 35 to 38. Let's start with the disciples' suffering will be like wheat being sifted. Again, it's important for us to understand identifying ourselves with Jesus means we will have a ruthless adversary and it will cost us much to be Jesus' disciple. Let's look. The disciples' suffering will be like wheat being sifted. We see this in verse 31 to 34. Notice it starts, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you 
like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is probably a passage many of you have read before, right? You've heard it. You've thought on it. It's a glorious passage. Amazing truths are found here. In this section, we see Jesus gives a glimpse into the suffering to come for the disciples. As we will see, Peter's response to Jesus only heightens the distance of Peter's fall. So let's walk down through this passage. Let's start first with the promise of suffering that comes from Satan. The promise of suffering that comes from Satan. He starts with Simon. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Notice he starts, Simon, Simon, repeating Peter's old name. Why did he use Peter's, uh, Peter's old name, Simon? And why did he repeat it? And why did he say, behold? Well, I believe all of this is to, given by Jesus to point Peter to the importance of the message and the warning that he was given him. It's like, listen up. This is very important. What I'm about to tell you, you better get in your head, Simon. Simon was Peter's name before he had met Jesus. Jesus renamed him after to Peter, right? He, he named Simon Peter. And he did this after Peter had made the statement, or Simon had made the statement, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when Jesus used Peter's old name, Simon, Jesus would be looking into the heart of Peter and seeing that vulnerable old self that was still very prone to sin. He literally was looking at his old man and saying, Look, this is where you're going. Listen up closely. Simon, Simon, you are prone to sin. You are vulnerable to fall. This is about as emphatic a way of introducing a warning as you can find in Scripture. To repeat his name twice and then to say, Behold, is like saying, Simon, Simon, listen up. Focus. Trouble's coming. Now, there's a tricky little part to this statement that you don't see in your English Bibles. If you notice there, it says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Notice the little you there? It's actually plural. It's not singular. He's not saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has per demanded permission to sift you, Simon, alone. He is literally, that's a plural there. It's Simon, Simon, si Satan has demanded permission to sift you all, disciples, like wheat. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Now, as Simon being the leader, he, the main crosshairs of Satan would be who? Simon, Peter. He would have been the main, but it expands to all of them. Satan has demanded 
This is a past action, something that's happened where, where Jesus has already been informed of Satan asking to sift the disciples. And literally, it's a middle tense, which is important. It's, it's as if Satan is asking for himself. It's like, I want these play toys. These are mine. I want to destroy them. They're for me. Give me authority over them for me. He's asking for authority. To ask from one or to ask for another person. In other words, this is Satan has asked for the authority to torture you all for his wicked pleasures. Man, that's scary, isn't it? This is much like Job, as we saw in our Old Testament reading. The picture language here also helps to paint the dire situation the disciples were in. With Simon being the leader, he would be the main focal point of Satan's attack. Satan wanted to have power over him so that he could sift them like wheat. Satan's purpose for having authority over them was to inflict great pain. The picture was that of wheat being beaten and thrown up into the air to separate the chaff from the pure wheat. It was as if the twelve were the wheat and the entire group were going to be thrown up into the air, beaten and abused until only the true wheat remained. Probably. The bulk of the pain was emotional pain. Because listen, everything they thought was going to happen was going to be questioned. Remember, these guys were thinking any day now there's going to be a kingdom, a great kingdom, and we're going to even be on thrones. (laughs) Judging the twelve tribes of Israel, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. And instead... They were going to have their king taken from them, beaten, tried, then crucified on a cross as a transgressor and a blasphemer. Everything they thought about Jesus and the direction that they thought things were going was actually the opposite. How well do you all do with that, by the way? How well do you do with that? You have everything going, you got a good plan, you got everything understanding. Oh, I know where things are going, and then have it completely turned upside down on you. How well do you do with it? I don't know about you. I don't do that well either. How about when one of the little ones spills milk all over everything, or your computer, or something like that? Well, that's not the direction I thought it was supposed to go. Well, that's just a small thing. This is their king, their whole future, their whole worldview. Everything they thought the opposite was going to happen. I'm going to have everything. It reminds me so much, and granted, this wasn't what they were sold. Jesus had told them that it was this way. But they thought... They thought very much like the seeker-sensitive movement of today. They thought, oh, following Jesus, it's going to be good. This is going to be a happy life. Everything's going to be good. And then cancer hits. What? That's not right. Or a child dies. Wait a second. 
I thought add Jesus to my life and everything's going to be great. Hmm. You wonder sometimes, don't you? Again, this sifting was not limited to Peter. However, it's interesting how Peter's sifting would probably be used by the Lord after because he would then be called on to strengthen the brethren. And this is so important. Ladies and gentlemen, your sifting or your own suffering is given to you by God as a grace gift to help other people. It's a wild thought. Hard to understand when we're in the midst of it, right? In the midst of it, we don't like that. But we see this with Peter. Beloved, as scary as the picture was, all of the disciples should have fell on their knees and cried out to the Lord at that moment, what do we do? What do we do? Right? That's what they should have done. <laughs> Beloved, it's not like the disciples did not know the depths of Satan's evil, right? They had their Old Testaments. They had read the book of Job. This evil and the extent of Satan would go that he would go to, God had clearly revealed in the book of Job, as we read in our Old Testament passage earlier, right? Satan is evil, isn't he? He totally destroys and kills his whole family. All of his children die. That's horrific to think of, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, it gets worse. Look, he comes back. Again, in Job 2.1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present him, them, himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Why did he do it again? For there is none, no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However... Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is your in your power. Only spare his life. Read the book of Job. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Boils. This is definitely not your best life now, right? Again, when we contemplate the depth to which Satan went with Job, we can see why the disciples should have fallen on their knees immediately and gone what? Oh boy, this is going to be bad. What do we do? Right? Shouldn't they have said that? But instead, what does Peter say? <laughs> oh, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to die for you. Ready to go to prison for you. 
What? It's almost shocking. But notice, right in the midst of all of this, this warning, look what Jesus does to encourage his disciple. To encourage them. Look what he says. It's wonderful. The compassionate prayer that provides hope. Notice what he says. He says, but I have prayed for you. Wow, what a glorious truth. This is Jesus himself saying, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is really interesting. Now he is completely focused only on Peter. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, man, this verse alone, there's so much glorious truth, we could probably meditate on it for two weeks. It's loaded with great truth. Jesus is emphatic here that he himself prayed for Simon Peter. It's literally this way. You could translate it. But I myself have prayed for you. Me. Now Jesus directed his attention to Peter alone, like I said. And the word for the prayer is a common word for prayer. It literally means to ask or urgently seek or petition or plead with God the Father. Notice Jesus had already prayed for Peter. This had already happened. Now, so what did Jesus pray for Peter? Look what he prayed. That your faith may not fail. Jesus had prayed or petitioned the Father for Peter's perseverance in the faith. This, folks, is encouraging to hear. Remember, Peter was going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus was going to be denied by the man that Jesus was now praying for. Jesus knew full well how far Peter would fall and what Peter would do. Yet Jesus still prays for Peter's faith to not fail. Jesus was literally praying for the one that was going to spit in his face and curse that he never knew him. How many of you think that way? How many of us in the room think that way? You know, that's a great application for us, isn't it? You know, if we're all honest, it's much easier for us to pray for someone who denies Jesus. But if someone hurts or mistreats us personally, oh, now that's a struggle, right? That person's denying Jesus, we go, oh, yeah, I can pray for him. Oh, please, Lord, help him come to you. But a person that denies you and rejects you, and treats you bad? Oh, Lord. Our prayers change then, don't they? They're more like this. Oh, Lord, please show them the error of their ways. Lord, please help them to come and get right with me. Lord, I just want them to know and understand just how much they hurt me. That's how we pray. It's not common for us to pray this. Father, forgive them. And Lord, I don't care what they do to me. I just want them to have faith in you. Any of you pray that ever? I don't care what they do to me. I just want them to love you. That's, that's totally contrary. But this is what Jesus is saying. 
I don't care if he denies me. I really want him to just embrace you and hold on and continue to run back to you. Beloved, this is, this is a huge verse. I want you to notice that this reveals a lot about our Lord, though, that he cares about his disciples. And he prays for them. And he prays for us too. That's a wild thought. As we stumble and bumble along, he's like this great advocate for us who comes alongside of us and prays to the Father for us. He petitions on our behalf even as we are, uh, even as we find ourselves in ways not honoring Him and sinning, He's still there and He's still constantly saying, that one's mine, that one's mine. And He loves us and He prays for us. Boy, that'll, that'll make you trust Him, won't it? What a glorious God we serve. What a glorious Savior. Folks, there is some huge implications in this verse. Doctrinal implications that we all need to know. Notice the, this reveals the heart of our Lord, as I said. He is concerned for His children. And He's concerned for your survival. If you are truly His child, He will do everything to make sure that you continue to the end. How do I know that I can't lose my salvation? How do I know? Because Jesus is my advocate. Jesus is my prayer warrior. <laughs> you guys pray for me. Praise God. But I'm thankful Jesus prays for me more. Because he has a direct access to the Father. <laughs> the Father listens to his Son. He is able, notice also, he is able to petition for his children's spiritual survival. This is good news. And specifically... He's all about praying for a child's faith. He's all about praying for us to continue to trust in Him. You know, this is important, isn't it? It says that God plays a major role in a person's faith being maintained. What it implies is because Jesus prayed for Peter's faith to not fail, it didn't. What does this imply? It implies that God does something to keep us believing in Him. That's important to understand. It means that God is ultimately sovereign even over your faith. You will be a believer forever because God is the reason ultimately. You will maintain your walk with Him because of God. Now, do we believe? Yes. Is it our personal belief? Yes. But there's a mystery in the fact that God is also the one that keeps us believing. And that's what's implied from this prayer. Jesus knows also, notice in this verse, that his prayers will be answered. Look at the second half of the verse. It says, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, listen, the first couple times I read this, and you read it in English, you don't really see it. Notice it says, I have prayed for you, and that your faith may not feel, fail, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You could almost read this, that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, 
and that he would strengthen his brothers, right? That's how you could read it. But that's not what it says. It literally says it this way. Look at it closely. I pray that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, now it's a command. When your faith, when you, once you have turned again, here's the command. Strengthen your brothers. That's a command. The implication is this, ladies and gentlemen. Very, very important. Jesus prays that Peter's faith won't fail. And he knows that his prayer will be answered because then he gives a command for Peter afterwards that he will strengthen his brothers. You understand? It's as if, I know you're not going to fall away. I prayed, and you're not going to fall away. And when you return, what you need to do is strengthen your brothers. He looks at Peter and gives that command. Do you get this? Do you understand? What does this imply? There's so many implications, so many amazing truths here. Satan, the evil one, comes in and is going to sift Peter, but this is part of God's plan, and Christ prays for him that he will be sustained and he will return after he has fallen and then strengthen the brethren. God is using what Satan meant for evil for good. It's a wild thought. In other words, Satan comes along and sifts Peter, and Peter falls. But Peter returns. He repents because he's right with God. He has a regenerated heart, and he trusts in God, and he returns. And then, because of the fall, he's able to encourage those other brothers that are being sifted by Satan also. It's a wild thought. Oh, do you see the glorious truth in this? Do you understand how God works despite our circumstances? He is working within our circumstances to cause us to encourage one another. And again, the implications for us all as true followers are mind-blowing. Jesus is that the same today as he was then, and he's just as concerned for each and every one of his child children as he is to him look at john 17 john 17 jesus had just prayed this probably probably either right previous to this or right after this most likely on the way out to the mount of olives and he says this I do not ask on behalf of these alone. This is in the high priestly prayer, right, where Jesus is talking. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Those also who believe in me through their word. Guess who that is? That's us. It's everybody that has believed, everybody that has trusted in Christ. So here we have a picture of Jesus praying 
for all the believers to come through the word of God that these guys were going to preach and proclaim and write. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus prayed for us. And as we know from the author of Hebrews, I think he's praying for us today. Look at Hebrews 7, 25. It says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow, glorious truth. You ask me why I cannot lose my salvation. You ask me? I'll tell you, because Jesus is praying for me. We cannot, if we are a believer, a true believer. It's a fact. All genuine, born-again believers cannot lose it. Now that does not, now listen, that does not mean if you prayed some prayer when you were a little kid and haven't walked with Jesus at all, that you're okay. You understand? If you're not... If your heart does not love Christ, you do not understand that He died for you, then you have not been really born again. You need to repent and embrace Jesus Christ, and then your salvation will be secured. But, Jesus is not praying to keep somebody saved that never really turned to Him and embraced Him as their Savior and Lord, but just prayed a prayer and did a religious act. He ain't praying for those. It's very important for us. So I would ask all of you and challenge all of you, make sure, as the Apostle Paul makes very clear, make sure of your elect, your calling. Make sure you're right with Christ. If you're not sure, read the book of 1 John. I'll tell you whether or not you're walking with Jesus. But Jesus is keeping his own. Jesus is petitioning for our faith. And we should pray similar to this, shouldn't we, folks? We should be praying for each other's faith. We should be praying for God to keep people. The Father hears and helps us to maintain our trust in Him, even when we fall down. This is why, folks, that a true believer always, eventually, repents and believes again and trusts. And finds their way back to Christ. I have said this countless times. But it can't be said enough. Believers, we do sin. Yes. But the difference between us and others is God saves us all the way to the end. And we end up returning to Him. Why do we return to Him? Why do we turn back to Him? Because God works in us. As Peter. And as it was in his life. We always, always find our way back to the gospel. I was so encouraged this week. I got a card. Y'all, sometimes you wonder whether or not I should be teaching at this Clearwater Christian College. I got a card um, when I left uh, this week. I was so encouraged. They gave me, uh, this one young lady sent me or gave me a card and said, you know, I want to thank you. She said, I never understood the concept of Christians preaching the gospel to themselves daily. She said, this is the most profound thing I've had in the two years I've been at Clearwater. It has changed my life. That's, that's almost worth going back next semester, huh? 
Yes, the gospel is where we go every day, ladies and gentlemen. If we are true believers, we go back to him all the time, don't we? So how should Peter and the apostles have responded to this thing? They should have said immediately, what do I do? This is going to be bad. What do I do? How can I follow you through this? How can I avoid this, this situation? Oh, please help me, God, right? That's what they should have said. But what did poor Peter say? Well, here it is. The foolish response that exacerbates the fall. Look, he says, But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Oh. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a case of thinking way too highly of yourself. This is definitely a clueless reaction by the Apostle Peter to Jesus' warning. Peter did not say, Oh my Lord, what exactly should we do? We're in trouble. Or, where am I most vulnerable? Tell me my vulnerable spot so I can avoid that. Or, what areas of my heart are prone to the enemy's attack? These are the kind of prayers that we should pray, right? This is the things he should have said. Thank you, Lord, for praying for me. How should I pray? How should we pray for each other? It's interesting, as they go out in just a little bit, and they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells them to pray, what do they do? They fall asleep. <laughs> they fall asleep. <laughs> it's just the opposite, isn't it? You know why? They thought too highly of themselves and too little of their adversary. They thought, thought way too high of themselves and too little of their adversary. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't go demon hunting. I don't. That is not my job to go around looking for demons and casting them out. Do you understand? I just depend upon the Lord and beg Him to keep me safe. And I need to do it more. And by the way, <laughs> I'm still prone to sin. <laughs> and so I need to know that I am vulnerable. And we should all know this, and we should constantly call out to Him. But instead of saying, I need you, Lord, Peter says, Lord, with you I'm ready to go, both to prison and to death. Jesus had just pointed to and told Peter, He's in for a huge battle, along with the disciples. Jesus has said, I have prayed for you, and you will ultimately endure because you return to me, you leave, you fall, but you will return to me. And Peter pipes up, I'm ready. He says, in effect, there is nothing I will not do for you, Lord. <laughs> oh, no. Doesn't this sound just like, doesn't this sound just like the Israelites after the exodus. All that you say. We will do. Mm, famous lines right. I'm ready to go to prison. And even die for you. Matthew. Adds this little gem. <laughs> of what else Peter said. At that moment. You know what else he said. In Matthew 26.33 it says this. Even though all may fall away because of you, 
I will never fall away. Wow. You know what that is? That is, bring it on, Satan. Come on, I can take you. Foolishness. Satan means to sift Peter for evil. He wanted to destroy Peter. He wanted to eliminate his testimony to others. He wanted to make Peter feel totally useless and like a total failure. Now, here's the coolest thing. Listen to me real close. You know what's really neat? Is all four gospel accounts talk about Peter's denial. And it's repeated a couple of times in the gospels. In those gospels at other times. Why? You know, this proves to me that this thing here, this is just a side note, is true. Because it doesn't exalt one of the main guys that start the church. It says, no, let me show you how bad he is. Let me show you how bad he is. He denied the Lord on the night that he was going to die. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, what's the point? The point is this. You can't do it. Christ is your hope. Jesus is your only hope. Cry out to Him. Don't depend on yourself. The wild thing is, is Satan meant it for evil, and Satan was so clueless because this is exactly what Peter needed. Now listen to me. This is difficult to wrap your mind around. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about this. Satan hates Peter. Satan wants to destroy Peter. Satan's main goal is to make him feel totally useless and hopeless. As a total failure, he wanted him to feel horrible. And that is exactly what Peter needed. What? Peter needed to get to the end of Peter. So that Peter would look to Jesus as his only hope. This is a wild thought. Oh, too often we think so highly of ourselves and we are prime. We are set up. It's as if we're walking into the trap. Come on in. The glorious truth is, is that God uses it despite it. God uses it despite it. And we see because of Jesus' prayer, Peter is reestablished and he literally strengthens the brethren. Read. I can't wait to go through Acts with you. This guy becomes the book of Acts, one of the main preachers. Totally different. He says, you may kill me. Whatever you do, you do. But as we got to serve God. That's a totally different mindset. Peter had elevated himself to a position of super Peter. The superhero apostle. Here I am to save the day. I leap tall buildings with a single bound. In a single bound. I can take the whole army by myself. That's what he does. Do you realize? Jesus shows up. The crowd comes to arrest Jesus. It's an army. He's got two swords. He pulls out one of the two. Notice who has one of the swords. 
and goes to chop off the head of the slave and misses and gets his ear off. That would have been an ama- that would have even been a more amazing miracle, wouldn't it, if he would have chopped his head off and Jesus would have <laughs> healed his head? I think he missed. <laughs> he just healed the ear instantly. Peter had confidence, didn't he? Tons of confidence. I mean, he was ready. Now, I confess, Peter's response to this is typical of me also. And it's typical of you too, I'm sure of it. I'm still prone to have a high view of my faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. And even elevating it over other people. Y'all do this? Nah, y'all wouldn't do that. Only the pastors do this, right? If you're honest, you do too. This, beloved, is a horrible sin. I have to make it my constant daily battle to kill this sin in my heart. Constantly. Peter says, in effect, I'm faithful and loyal to you no matter what the cost. I'm faithful above everyone else. Beloved, be on the lookout for these kind of moments of pride in your own life. These are the times when you think these. You say things like this in your mind. You say, I'm going to fix this guy's wrong thinking. Ever said that before? I'm going to fix this guy's wrong thinking. You know what that is? Very careful. Pride. Or this one. Man, why does that person keep doing the same thing? I would have learned after the first couple of times of falling down. Ever said that one before? You just said the same thing Peter said. Or maybe you see another brother or another believer and you say, and you're talking to them, you, you're just going to have to be patient with that lady because she's weak in those areas. And that almost sounds okay, doesn't it? Better watch your heart. If you're elevating yourself, you're wrong. Sinful. The scary thing to me is that sometimes even seemingly innocent statements can have the same pride as Peter had here. A statement like, I worked so hard last week. What's wrong with that? I worked really, really hard last week. Is that a bad statement? It can be. If you're exalting yourself. I'm worn out by all this ministry that I'm doing. (laughs) Working so hard. And I'm tired. You can see why I was hurting last night. Or how about this one? I sure wish I had more help at home. What's wrong with that? That's okay, isn't it? Depends. If you're doing it because you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're saying, I'm the one that does it all, there's a problem. Do you see that it is the same thing? This is how easy we are prone to go into this prideful thinking, aren't we? Who's the most Christian person in your life? 
If you think it's you, you're wrong. On the surface, these statements can appear to be innocent, can't they? But it depends upon our heart and the one we're saying it to and why we're saying it. And by the way, we can fall into the opposite of it. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm no good. Look at me. I'm horrible. That can be prideful too. Because you can actually be saying, my value is in what I do. And God accepts me because of what I do. And that is sin too. Do you understand? Or wanting pity. Or somebody come along and say, oh, but you're so good. You're, no, you're so faithful. No. Jesus is my satisfaction. He is good. I'm prone to sin. If we say, I sure wish I had more help at home to gain pity from someone, we're actually doing the same thing Peter did. If we put down others who are not helping us, folks, this is pride. I, this is why I, I'm convinced expectations, we need to name it what it is. Expectations on other people. You ready? You want to know what expectations on other people are is? In a simple expectation, one singular, is. Ready? Here it is. It's pride. It's sin. They aren't living up to my expectation. Who are you? <laughs> You're a slave. You're not the master. Expectations are sin. Repent of that sin. It's the same thing Peter said. I have this expectation because I would do it if I were you. <laughs> what? No, you wouldn't. If you do it for the right motives, it would be because of God's grace. This is totally different thinking, isn't it? Anybody heard anything like this before from the world? Never. You probably heard it from me. Preach this stuff all the time. Peter is full of himself at this point, and the distance to the depth of his fall is getting bigger and bigger. The more he thinks of himself, the harder the fall is going to be. But look at what Jesus says. The merciful warning that he gives further details. Look at what Jesus says, he says, and he said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Deny that you have known me three times. Oh, my. So we see here, Peter was headed towards a huge fall, right? Jesus knew it. So Jesus prayed for him and he warned him. And then he warned him again. Notice Jesus literally tells Peter, what he was going to do before he does it. I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Again, the full depth of our Savior's grace and mercy is on display here. Jesus knows Peter is on the edge of a huge fall, and yet he still warns him, and he warns him again. Jesus knows the fall is going to include his own pain 
because Peter's going to deny him. Yet in great mercy, Jesus continues to warn him and reveal to Peter the exact sin Peter was going to do. But Peter's pride blinded him to the word of God. Man, this is scary. I mean, this verse, this concept here, let me tell you, let me ask you a question. If I told you that within a few hours, a specific sin you were going to do, would you do everything you could to avoid that sin? I mean, if I told you in just a little bit of time, you're going to deny Jesus as your Lord three times before a cock crows next morning, Okay, if I told you that, how many of you would say, man, I'd go to bed. I'm going to sleep. i got to be asleep before that cockroach. Something's got to happen, right? Wouldn't you do that? If you said yes, you're right there where Peter was. Do you understand? If you said, oh, I would do whatever it takes to avoid that, you're saying the same thing Peter said. I will die for you. I'll even go to prison. Do you get it? Some of you? If somebody tells you that you're going to sin, you're going to fall into a hole, do this. Oh, no! <laughs> Lord, help me. I'm vulnerable. I'm headed towards disaster. But sin blinds you. Pride blinds you. Does the Proverbs say, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But even... But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So folks, what is, what is our solution? What is the solution to this? It's only one solution. And his name is Jesus. <laughs> you can't do it. I can't do it. We are all prone. Seek Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul. Only He can pray for you and keep you out of that jam. Only He is your hope. There is no other hope out there. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Oh, Lord, we are needy people vulnerable people and we have an adversary who prowls around seeking whom he can devour and God everybody else in this room we are right now fully aware through your word that we are needy and vulnerable and so we cry out please help us please protect us please keep us from falling into all the various Lust of the pride, lust of the flesh. 
All these things, Lord, that come at us, please protect us. We cannot do it without you. We know that with you, all things are possible. And so we rely now on you. We cry out to you. We thank you for being our righteousness and our Savior. For the countless times that we have sinned before, thank you, Father, that you provided your Son. God, I pray that if there's someone in this room that is relying upon themselves to be right with you, I pray, God, that you will give grace and mercy and show them their need of you. I pray, God, that you will open their eyes to see the glory of your Son. I pray that they will return or they will turn to you as their Savior. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.